For those of you that don't know me, my name is Pat. I'm the senior pastor over at uh, Calvary Chapel 14.6, just up the road. And it is truly an honor. It's a privilege, really, it is to be here. I'm, I was really thrilled. I got this call. I'm, wow, you guys trust me. I, I feel really good about that. So I'm going to do my best here. And so what I think I'm going to do is start with a little story, which is what I do every time. Okay, just so you know. So back in 1937, there was an architect. His name was Frank Lloyd Wright. You ever heard of him? And we named a street after him. He's a, one of our boys. He's a local guy. And he built a, a house, a special house for a very wealthy industrialist. This man's name was Hibbard Johnson. And he was very wealthy. He was a wax industrialist. So he built this house. And, and Hibbard was a very proud man. He was the kind of man that was determined to make himself look good at all costs. And so he tended to invite very, very important, very distinguished people to his house for dinner engagements. And uh, one evening, you know, um, he invited um, a senator and a number of other very, very important people to his house. And there was a problem. Right in the middle of his little dinner speech, a leak sprung up in the roof and it began to drip literally right on his head. And he was a bald guy. And he was sitting there with trying to entertain these important people in this drip, drip right on his head. And he was, he tried ignoring it and he kind of tried to move over a little bit and it just kept dripping. And then he'd move over this way. And people were beginning to, there's a, you know, but he would not move. Finally, he got so frustrated, he said to all these people, Frank Lloyd Wright built this house. This, this is his problem. I'm going to get him on the phone. So he reaches over. Now, this is pre-cell phone days, guys, 1937. So he reached over and he grabbed the phone. It was right there, right next to the table. And he called because he wanted to make sure that people understood that this was not his fault. So he called Frank Lloyd Wright and got him on the phone. And he said, Frank, I am, I'm sitting here. You built this beautiful house for me. I enjoy it very much. But I, I'm with these distinguished guests and I, I'm sitting here and there's water. It's dripping out of the roof right, right on my head. You've got to do something about this. And loud enough for everybody to hear, Frank Lloyd Wright on the other end of the phone says, Hib, move your chair. <laughs> that would be step one. How many of you know that sometimes a stubborn heart can be so blind it won't see the obvious. It just will not. How many of you have been in an argument with somebody and they just will not see the obvious? Right there. And you can see it because you know you're right. <laughs> Wait a second. A stubborn heart. Huh. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. See, clearly, listen, this is why this is important. Clearly, listening to good advice is simply not enough. If you don't act on it, if you don't do what it says, you're wasting your time. Doesn't the scripture say that? Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a, say it with me, doer. 
Because if you don't do what the word is telling you to do, it's like a man who's looking in the mirror. He's, he sees what he looks like, but instead of responding to it, he, he turns away and he completely forgets what he just saw. It's ridiculous. But that's what happens with a stubborn, hard heart. Now, We've been studying at 14.6, the book of Exodus. We're going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, just like everybody does uh, in, in the Calvary movement. And we're up to chapter seven, and we're gonna start at verse 14. That's where we left off, so that's where you get to start tonight. So Exodus chapter seven and verse 14. And we're gonna, we're gonna learn a little bit about a hard heart from a guy named Pharaoh. And it goes like this. Verse 14 says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, how many of you are familiar with this story? You're, you've, you've, you've been to Sunday school. You've read this. You understand what's about to happen. We are going to go into some major plagues that are coming up. Ten major plagues are about to begin right here at this verse. And I think the first thing that we need to understand when we examine this story, and this I think is really, really critical, is that for the first six of these plagues, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But after the sixth plague, it says that God hardened his heart. In other words, there comes a point where your free will gets to a certain place where it's no longer free. This is an important principle for all of us to understand, Christian or not, that you, you are what you are becoming. The path you choose to go down, it will dominate your destiny. That is what's going to happen. Okay, a good example that comes right off the top of my head. It, you can start drinking of your own free will, but eventually there will come a point where you cannot not drink, where you become so addicted to the substance that you will do anything to get another drink. You have hardened your heart to the point where you have lost your freedom of will. This is what we're going to see in Pharaoh's life. He's going to start out hardening his own heart, but it's going to get to a place where God is going to say, fine, if you're going to harden your heart, I'm going to confirm you in the choice that you have made. And I'm going to make an example out of you. And it can happen to any one of us. It can happen to anybody. There is a warning here. There is something we need to learn. Now, it says here, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible here, and it says Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. But the Hebrew word here is much stronger than our English word stubborn. How many of you know that English is a really messy language? 
It's a mutt language. It really is. It is a mixture of Latin and French and German and Dutch and all kinds of stuff. And it just got all smashed together and we called it a language. Okay, Hebrew is not like that. Hebrew is very, very precise. And that's why oftentimes we have to go back to that word to figure out what it really means. I don't think stubborn really fits this word at all. Because stubbornness, well, that's, that's, that's something a little bit different. Stubbornness, listen to me, is not determination. Sometimes we think of it as determination or grit or perseverance. That's not stubbornness. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You can be, and some people will say, okay, you, 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 you know you need to get into physical condition, so you try, you work out, you, you're determined. Some people may even say to you, boy, you're stubborn, particularly when you are willing to get up at four in the morning to go to the gym, when you're willing to get past the opposition, whether that opposition is you fighting the alarm clock or the opposition of going to the gym and having to deal with the fact that everybody around you looks like Arnold and you don't and you know it. But you get past that. You get past all of those things. You stick with it. That's not stubbornness. That's determination. And we need to understand the difference you see, I, I really think the King James hits this one a little bit better in terms of that word. It's not really stubborn. It's a hard heart. That's a whole different animal. We need to understand what that is. When we talk about the heart, we are talking about the center of who you are as a person. Let's set that back a little bit. Put that one down. I don't want to get there yet. Thank you. Getting ahead of me. <laughs> What, 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 uh, what, uh, what your heart is, is the center of who you are as a person. It's the essence of you. It's what makes you unique and different. It is what makes you a reflection, an image of God that is unlike any other human being that has ever existed or ever will exist. Your DNA is 100% unique. There has never been a genetic code like yours. There never will be ever again. You are unique. And the essence of who you are is your heart. It is from your heart that your decisions of will are made. Who you determine yourself to be. The essence of your existence. That's what the heart is. And we talk about the word hard, we're talking about unyielding. Now imagine, if you will, um, a sponge and you've soaked it with maple syrup. Now if you soak a sponge with maple, maple syrup and you squeeze it, what's going to happen? Because it's soft, it's going to ooze out, correct? And not only is it going to ooze out, but it's going to be a sticky disaster, because you're going to squeeze it, and it's going to get on everything and everybody around you. That's what soft is. Soft goes out. Soft connects. It sticks. Soft oozes away from the center. That's what a soft heart does. A soft heart has empathy. It's looking out. It's going 
I'm trying to get into your shoes in this conversation. I'm reaching outwards, not inwards. That's a soft heart. But a hard heart is exactly the opposite. When you think about hardness from a scientific point of view, you're talking about density. When we, when we take a, a sponge and we fill it with syrup, the density is very low. And the reason it's low is because the molecules are not, they're not pulling themselves together. They're loosely connected. There's an attraction, but it's very light, which is why you put any kind of pressure on it, it's going to expand outwards. Whereas if you look at a rock, if you look at a mineral, if you get down to its uh, atomic structure, you get down to its subatomic structure, the density is very, very tight. Why? Because the atoms are pulling inwards. The focus is in. And that's what makes it hard. So when you are pulling inward, a hard heart is where your feelings, your attitude, your thought process, everything is about your own self-interest, your own self-protection. Your feelings are more important than the person you're dealing with. Your feelings are more important than good reasons not to drink that, not to try that substance, not to go that direction. You see, your feelings are sitting on the throne of who you are. The essence of who you are is focused inward. That's where hardness of heart comes from. You see, if you get to a place where you are so afraid of being embarrassed, of being wrong, you're so afraid of looking bad that you will protect your feelings at all costs, even when there's good sense, good reason right in front of you that you should change that behavior. You should change that direction but you have an adrenaline rush that says, I ain't going there because that'll make me look bad. You can see this in a number of different people. Think about an over-controlling parent. Now, if I have a four-year-old, I am going to deal with that four-year-old, I hope, differently than my 24-year-old. Now, sometimes my 24-year-old does act like he's four years old. I can give you a list. I won't because he might be watching. But anyway, the point is my 24-year-old may be acting like he's four, but he's not four. Now, me as a parent, I have several choices here. I can harden my heart against him being an adult and making his own decisions, and that includes a whole lot of mistakes and dumb moves as far as I'm concerned as a parent. But I remember being 24, and I just wasn't that dumb. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> my dad says something different to me. And if I look at my diaries, does that make sense? Now, you see, if I harden my heart against him, I control. I try to control my kids. I try to control them with guilt. Try to control them with fear. Try to control them with, you know, my, my language and my attitude towards them because I don't want to feel bad about what that kid is doing because it embarrasses me. I don't want to feel bad because I'm going to have to pick up the pieces when you blow this relationship. 
and you end up divorced and you're only 24 or whatever it happens to be. Does that make sense? And that over-controlling, but what does it do? It's a hardness of heart because I'm focused inward as the parent. I don't really care about the kid. I care about me. And that's where that controlling has come from. I won't let go. And because I'm doing that, I'm literally hardening myself to the point where I'm isolating myself from the kid. And this is why you end up with parents who haven't talked to their children in years. Because eventually the kid goes, you know what? I'm done, dad. I'm not going to be controlled by you anymore. I'm a big boy. Leave me alone. How many of you want that kind of relationship with your kid? Please don't raise your hand. I don't want that kind of relationship with my son, but you know what? It's hard to let go. Or how about controlling in a marriage? You get into a situation where I'm, you know, know, we do marriage counseling a lot in the the pastor business. And you end up in these situations where you've got one spouse that is totally over controlling the other. And why is this? Because, now I'm going to put it into I terms so that this will make sense. Not that my marriage looks like this, but I will admit to you that once upon a time it did. And I'm willing to stand up in front of all of you and tell you that because Melissa and I figured out that if we do things God's way, we're going to have a great marriage, which we do now, but not 15 years ago. Because back then, we didn't understand these concepts and we had a hardness of heart going on. You see, if I get into a place where I am wanting to protect my feelings at all costs, I don't care what you're saying. Because right now, I'm the one that's being hurt by X, Y, or Z that's going on in this situation. And I'm going to try to control it. Now, once upon a time in my marriage, my way of trying to control Melissa and my kids was through fits of rage. And they lived in mortal terror of whether or not I was going to explode on them. And that was my way of controlling them. And why did I want to control them? Because I didn't want to feel bad. Who's the center here? I am. What's that called? Say it with me. Pride. Say it again. Pride. What is the sin of the devil? Pride. And it wasn't until a very trusted friend of mine came up to me and said, have you ever read the scripture where it says the fruit of the flesh? And one of those is fits of rage. I didn't want to hear it. I had a hardness of heart being confronted as well. See, hardness of heart, here's, here's, the, here's the definition of it. Get it in your head because it's something that can change your life. A hard heart is where you make decisions not to change your attitude, not to change your position on something in spite of good arguments that you should. Why? Because you believe your feelings are more important than anything else. That's what hardness of heart is. And it gets worse and worse and worse over time if you practice it. So let's look at it again. A hard heart is where you make decisions, emotional decisions, not to change your attitude. You're not going to change your position on something, even though you've got really good arguments that you should. Why? Because you believe that your feelings are simply more important than anything else. Now, I'm going to give you another definition, and I don't have it up on the screen, but I want you to understand what unbelief is. When we talk about biblical unbelief, We are not talking about intellectual unbelief. You can can say, intellectually, I could say, I believe this is water. 
or I can say, I believe this is wine. Now, truth is that thing which conforms to what is real, what matches the facts. That's what truth is. So I could say, I believe this is wine all I like. Evidence says it's not, it's water. I checked. Okay, now, unbelief then is not an issue of whether or not I believe this exists. Biblical unbelief, listen to me now, biblical unbelief is where I choose what I feel over what God has led. Let me say that again. Biblical unbelief is where I choose to allow my feelings to tell me not to follow God's lead in my life. That's what unbelief is. It's not intellectual. It's where you let your feelings rule you. Your feelings say, I want to go do X. God's word says X is not right. Don't do it. You choose your feelings, that's unbelief. Now, humility is exactly the opposite. Biblical humility is where you choose to follow God's lead no matter what you feel. And you're willing to do that so that God's reputation and God's way is uplifted in the eyes of everybody around you. That's what humility is. Humility is not walking around going, I'm just navel lint. I'm nobody. That's not humility. Because really, when you're doing that, I'm so horrible, I'm so awful, I'm not talented, I'm humble. No, you're not, because what you're really doing is you're going, here, tell me it's not true, rub my ego. Come on, that's what I'm looking for. That's not humility. No, humility is where I'm going to choose to follow God's lead in my life, no matter what I feel. My feelings aren't going to rule me. God's lead, God's word, that's what's going to rule me. So if we take all of these definitions and we put them all together and we go back to hardness of heart, if I am choosing pride rather than humility, my heart becomes harder, becomes more inward focused. I am more and more and more interested in protecting myself and my feelings than anything or anyone else. This is why, and this is one of the things that frustrates me probably the most in marriage counseling issues that I've dealt with over the years, is you're dealing with somebody that's been married 20, 25 years, and they're getting a divorce. Now, what in the world is going on with that? You'd figure after 20, 25 years, you'd figure out how to do this by now. But no, actually what's happened is you've been choosing hardness of heart for so long that it's reached a point where you don't have any feelings left. There's nothing here. Now, which do you want to be? Do you want to be married for 20, 25 years and be more in love at the end? Or so hard of heart that you're going, why are we here? What are we doing? What's the point? Which one do you want? Please say the first. Okay, now how do we get there? Now, Melissa and I were in a, a tough situation marriage-wise when, when we first got married because I'll admit to you that it was a second marriage for both of us. Now, Melissa's husband died, but my wife left me with three little kids and split with some other guy. So I'm a single parent with three kids and Melissa joins my life. And we're trying to put this thing together and we had all kinds of issues. We had all kinds of baggage. We had all kinds of problems. I'm a rageaholic trying to control everything and everybody around me. And we're trying to put this thing together. And 
our hardness of heart. Why? Because my desire to feel good about myself was sitting on the throne. And anything that Melissa did or said that was a threat to me feeling good, anything that I took as criticism, anything I took as pointing out a flaw in me, well, that makes me look embarrassed, makes me look like a fool. Anything that was coming my direction, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harden myself. Why? I don't want to feel that way, so I'm going to harden myself, and I am not going to give you what you need. Not a chance. And the harder I got, the harder she got. Why? Because she's doing exactly the same thing. I'm feeling unloved. I am feeling like, why did I do this? This is insane. And we were going like this. But fortunately, we had some very godly, good folks around us to help us understand what we were doing. Pointed out James chapter 1 to us, where it says, my brothers, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Had to memorize that one. Taught us Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 tells me something. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. How much did Jesus love the church? He died on a cross for a crime I committed and was guilty of. Wow, I don't want to do that. That doesn't feel good. And it was then that I began to realize that my feelings are ruling me, not God's word. My Bible says, husbands, love your wives. It doesn't say husbands, love your wives when it's easy to do. Husbands, love your wives when they're lovable. Doesn't say it. Husbands, love your wives when they respect you and treat you well. Doesn't say that either. It just says, do it, boys. That's what it says. I'm paraphrasing the Greek. Now, there's another scripture there in Ephesians 5. Sorry, girls, I'm not going to let you off the hook. It says, wives, submit to your husbands in some things. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Everything. Not some things. Not things that are easy to submit to him to. No. Everything. And I checked in Greek. Everything. It means everything. And then the very last scripture says, wives, see to it that you respect your husband. And the word it uses in Greek for respect is phobio, which means to fear. And then he goes right on. He says, take a look at Sarah. She called Moses, or she called Abraham, my Lord. I'm sorry, Sarah. Did I get that right? Abraham. I'm getting all my names mixed up here. Help me, Lord. Okay. I get, I'm thinking Moses and Jacobed, and I'm thinking, uh, I got all these names in my head. Okay, but you get the point. All right. And, and then I realized if hardness of heart is this, Pride says, listen to me, pride says, God, my desire to feel good, my desire to protect myself from being embarrassed, my desire to not have this adrenaline rush when she says this or he does that, my desire is greater than your right to tell me how to live. That's what pride is. 
Humility is saying, God, your lead, your way is greater than my feelings and I'm going to choose it whether I like it or not. That's humility. You choose pride, becomes hardness of heart. You choose humility. The Bible says, James chapter 4, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So Melissa and I began to choose differently. We began to choose softness of heart versus hardness of heart. We began to choose, I am going to love this woman. She said, I'm going to respect this man. And she, we chose it. We chose to go, I'm going to be slow to speak, quick to listen. We learned a technique called the speaker-listener technique. Someday I'll, I'll teach it to you. But it, it, it's a beautiful way of being slow to speak and quick to listen. We chose it. It became a part of our life. The more we chose it, the better it got. And I am more in love with that woman today than the day I first laid eyes on her. And it's good. It's good. It's a good thing. But when you choose hardness of heart, let's go back to what he said. Moses said, you shall, or, you know, God said to Moses, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Look what happens next. Verse 16 says, and behold, you have not listened until now. Thus, because you haven't listened, that's what thus means. We're connecting these two ideas together. Because that's true, says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By what? The plague I'm about to lay on you, brother. You see, there, there comes a point. That's the point of a plague. You, you won't listen to reason? Fine. By this, you're going to know. You see, Pharaoh, you think your feelings, you believe you're a god. You believe it so much, Pharaoh, that your, your feelings are more important than your people. They're more important than anything to you. But by this, you will know I am the Lord, not your feelings. By what's about to happen, see, Pharaoh, you think that your plans are in control here, but by this, you're going to find out I am the Lord. By this. Hmm. How many of you want to go through a plague? But how many of you know that God loves you way too much to let you be stubborn? Way too much to let you choose hardness of heart. There's gonna come a point in your life when you keep choosing, you've got God's lead. If you are a believer tonight, John chapter 15 tells me that the Holy Spirit is in you. He will guide you into all truth. You know God's lead. People ask me all the time, well, I'm trying to find God's lead and I, I just shake my head. You already know. And if you're honest with yourself, you know. You know and you're knower. It's not a feeling. Yeah, I'm supposed to do that. You just know. That's the Holy Spirit. He speaks to you. If you're not a believer tonight, the only thing the Holy Spirit is saying to you is get saved. Everything else you're hearing, it's not him. But the Holy Spirit will lead you if you're a believer. He will tell you. Now, maybe it's through a message you hear. Maybe it's through a scripture you read. Maybe it's through good counsel that you get from other believers. But one way or another, you're going to get the lead where you know what you're supposed to do in a situation. You're going to get God's lead. But if you harden your heart, if your desire to be protected, 
I'm afraid of doing that. Now, I'm an expert at fear. I grew up, I'm half Canadian. So we would go back and forth between the States and Canada. And when we were in Canada, and I'm not making this up, I lived on an island in a log cabin with a dirt floor, and I'm not making that up, it's true. Now, when you live on an island in a cabin with a dirt floor, there are bears in the woods, <laughs> lots of them, and I like them. And I understand fear to the point of, I am not going to the outhouse, even if there's death involved. I ain't going down there because I'll get eaten on the way. And I would wait till near death before I would take the five yards. To the, you know what I mean? I mean, I lived, I understood fear, but fear was ruling me. And maybe fear is ruling you. You're afraid to get into that 12-step program. Why? Because you failed so many other times and you're afraid of failing again. But God is leading you. You need help. You need accountability. You need to get connected. You need it. But you're afraid. You're afraid people will find out that you got that problem. You won't get into marriage counseling because you're afraid that people are going to know that your marriage is messed up when you've done such a great job of putting on this face and everything's cool when you darn well know it's not. Fear. You're letting your feelings lead you. And the harder you get, eventually God loves you way too much and this is a principle of God's word that you need to understand. It's a principle. Get it in your head. If you continue to harden your heart towards God's lead. I don't know what God's lead is for you. But the principle is this. If you continue to harden your heart towards God's lead, he may allow a crisis in your life until you recognize he is the Lord and he has the right to lead your life. Your feelings should not rule you. But just like Pharaoh, God will warn you, maybe through a friend, maybe through a message you hear, scripture you read, good counsel, whatever it is, God will warn you over and over and over again. Change it, change it, change it. Bring it up to this altar and put it down before me in prayer and say, I'm going to let you begin to change this in my life, God. I'm going to learn how to deal with that. I'm going to get into counseling. I'm going to join the 12-step program, whatever it is. But if you continue to defy God's lead in your life. He loves you way too much to let that become hardness of heart. He will allow a crisis. He will. Until you say, you are the Lord. You have the right to rule my life. My friend, I've been through a lot of crises. Some crises I've looked at and I went, how is this my fault? And it wasn't. When I analyzed it, it wasn't my fault but there was still something I needed to grow in. And until I was willing to acknowledge that, I'm going to end up with another similar crisis. When you go through three or four, you go, you know, there's a pattern here. How many of you have been through enough crises in your life? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, you know what? I don't care how old you are. You can learn a new trick. Follow God's lead. It's in your best interest. Look what happens to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 says, Behold, Here's what's going to happen to you, brother. You won't listen to my lead? Fine. I will strike the water that's in the Nile with the staff that's in my hand and it will be turned to blood. 
the fish that are in the Nile, they're going to die. And the Nile will become foul and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile, you think? It's an understatement. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams and over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron, they did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile, they died and the Nile became foul. Can you imagine? So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. Now, there are plenty of people out there that will try to discount this immediately. They will try to say there's no such thing as miracles like this. It must have been red silt that floated down from the north, you know, and it came in other stuff. It wasn't red silt, for one thing. It killed the fish, and red silt doesn't kill the fish. Secondly, it was in all of the vessels of stone and wood and the reservoirs and everything else. So it wasn't a silt storm or anything like that. You know, the people that want to do this, the people that want to try to find some natural explanation for this is because they're, what's, in logic, we call it begging the question. What they're doing is they're assuming what they're trying to prove. They assume that miracles cannot happen. Therefore, they go try to find a way to prove it didn't happen. That's called begging the question. That's a logical fallacy. It's a mistake in reasoning. It doesn't work. You see, you really, when it boils down to it, you really only have two choices. You have only two choices. Either there is a God who has no beginning and has no end and has all power. And from him, the entire chain of cause and effect that leads up to your existence this evening comes from him. Or else, everything comes from nothing at all. The world's greatest physicist today will tell you that once upon a time, there was nothing. No space, no time, no energy, no laws of physics, absolutely nothing. And then bang, there was everything. And it exploded from one central point and it's been expanding out ever since and stars and galaxies and people and platypuses and everything. Now, I'm here to tell you, my friend, that it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that nothing gave birth to everything for absolutely no reason than it does to believe in a God who has always existed and has all power and said, let there be light. Now, my friends, the same God that created the heavens and the earth can turn water into blood if he wants to. So I'm here to tell you this is what really happened. The Nile was water, and then it weren't. And because Moses was standing there saying, thus saith the Lord, and went whack, there was no way that Pharaoh could go, well, gee, this is a natural phenomenon. Are you kidding? He was standing there. Good reason, good sense, right in his face, showing him that this was going to happen. But there's more to it than that. This was symbolic. You see, what God was doing is he was confronting the false gods that were in Egypt. Now, this is important because in your life, in my life, even as a believer, 
There are going to be things that you're going to elevate. And I hate to say it, like little gods. And God will confront the false gods in your life. Oh, yes, he will. And he's confronting that, you know, in this case, striking the Nile, you've got to understand the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. This is their god of the Nile, Hapi, the god of the Nile. And what God was doing is he was going and saying, you worship this god, let me show you. If this is really a god, he can take care of his own little river, but he didn't. And how about Pharaoh? Pharaoh himself believed he was a god in the flesh. Why didn't Pharaoh go, well, I'm a god. Change that back. Because he couldn't. And you see, they also had a god of the fish. Well, they're all dead. And you know what's also interesting? They had a god of crocodiles. And what happened here, and this is not written in the word, but just add the dots up. How many of you know that blood stinks something fierce after about an hour in the sun? And this is a desert flowing with pure blood. And every fish died. The rot smell would have been out of this world. And every single crocodile in the Nile would have went, I'm out of here, man. And they would have crawled out onto the sides. And where would they go? Into your fields. And here you are digging on the edge of the river, trying to get down where there's still water. Who's eating you? This was a really bad day for Egyptians. And God was saying, yeah, the gods that you worship are currently eating you. The other ones I killed. And you still want to defy me? You see what's going on here? Huh. Now, some critics will say, we don't have any evidence that the Hebrews were ever in Egypt. That's false, by the way. There's lots of evidence of Semitic people groups in the northern, in the delta region of Egypt. We've got tons of archaeological evidence for them. But they also say, you're not going to find any evidence in Egyptian literature about this devastating event. And if it really happened, surely there would be something. Well, first of all, we have to understand how much Egyptian literature we really have. You know, one of the things is, you know, we see Egyptian, um, you know, hieroglyphs and we see all this and we think there's buckets and buckets and buckets and tons and tons and tons of literature just laying around for us to read. That's actually not the case. It's, there's <laughs> very little. And what we have, tomb paintings and a few papyrus fragments that have survived and some monuments, most of those tomb paintings and monuments are just plain propaganda. Do you think an Egyptian king is going to put on his tomb walls all of his defeats or all of his victories? That's all we have is propaganda, except for this. This is called the Ippawar papyrus. Now, this papyrus is very, very interesting. Now, I love the critics on this one. Okay, we know from the style of writing that you see there, and we know that this copy right here that you're looking at right here comes from about 1200 BC. That's 200 years after Moses left Egypt. However, the writing style and the, and the type, it would be like if I found a manuscript today and it was in Elizabethan English, I would go, that comes from the 1500s, right? Because of that style of language. Well, the style of language here, this is a copy of something from about 1450 BC, right in the middle of when Moses was standing in front of Pharaoh. And it's very interesting what this papyrus says, and I quote, 
It says, the river is turned to blood, yet men drink of it. Hmm. And there's another line that says, the men are few, for they have all fallen. And another one that says, there is darkness across the face of the whole land. And another verse says, all our wealth is gone. The slaves wear it around their necks. And there's another one that says, all the livestock have died. Woe is Egypt, for it is ruined. Hmm. Sounds familiar. It comes from the same time period. It says all the things that Exodus say. And all the scholars say, this is not evidence of Exodus. There's nothing to see here. These are not the droids you're looking for. Move on, move along. For those of you that missed that reference, that's scary. Going on. So we do have evidence that this really happened in a real way, in real history. Now here's what happens next. Look at verse 22. It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink while they're getting eaten by crocs. I added that. For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now, I find this interesting. Remember what hardness of heart is. It's choosing your feelings over good sense. Now think about the stupidity of this. If you're really a god, why didn't Pharaoh go out there and snap his fingers and turn everything back into water? Unless you're not really a god. But he didn't want to face that, did he? And how about these magicians? How many of you know that a good magician can make flowers come out of nothing, supposedly? Now, we know it's an illusion, don't we? Because we know that that magician had those flowers hidden somewhere and he amused his little sleight of hand and he amazes us. I once saw him, uh, um, a magician, his name was Harris III, and he's a Christian. And he does these amazing things up on the stage and he looks out and he says, looks like magic, doesn't it? And we're all, yeah, we're all cheering. It was really cool. And he goes, it's just a trick. I deceived you. Made you go, ooh. But I assure you, it's just a trick. Took me a lot of years to figure it out. And no, I won't tell you the secret, but it's just an illusion. Now, let's think about this for a second. If these magicians were real magicians, why didn't they turn the blood back into water? I mean, don't you think we got enough blood? I mean, seriously. I mean, any, any decent magician can sleight of hand and go, boom, look what, I found, look what I've got here. And that's all they're doing. They're taking some good water. I don't know whether they must have dug in the ground and got some good water and said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, don't, don't look at this. Look at us. We're smarter. Watch. Blood. See? Well, how's that helping the situation? It's, it's not helping the situation at all. In other words, you can blind yourself to good reason. If they were real, if they had any real power, they would solve the problem, not make it worse. And this, this is so important because, listen to me now, the devil is not interested in solving your problems. Let me say that again. If that's not a principle you understood, the devil is not interested in solving your problems. He's not going to do that. You see, Satan's lies 
only deceive. For example, you know, how many of you know, now, if you haven't taken 10th grade biology, I apologize, but how many of you know that sex was designed by God? He invented it. If you did not know that, read Genesis again. In the garden, they were naked. And it was okay. And the devil lies to you. You see, God's way says a man and his wife, knock yourself out. I invented it. Have a great time. And we all go, yeah, but it's true. I mean, if it's not fun, you and I need to set a marriage counseling appointment. We're going to discuss this, okay? But look, the, 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 it was designed that way. But the devil goes, this, oh, hey, look, look over here. Hey, I'll give you the fun. Go sleep around. You can have the same fun, and you don't have to have all the commitment stuff. Don't worry about that. Here, just look over here. Shh. But what does he give you? More blood. Sexually transmitted diseases. Unwanted pregnancies, broken hearts. Death. More blood. How many of you know that it was God that invented the adrenaline rush you get when you drop down on a, on a uh, uh, roller coaster? It's okay to have fun. In other words, God invented it. Some people think that being a Christian means that you sit around looking important and pious like you've been sucking on a green lemon for a week. I mean, I just, I just saw your pastor in here going, put your hands up, man, it's a party. But you're missing something here. It's okay to have fun. If you can go to a U2 concert and go... Okay, you can come to this and go, God. Okay, there's nothing wrong with it, brother. Nothing wrong. Fun and games are okay. But the devil lies to you and he pulls out his little hat and he puts his little magic wand and he goes, here, look, you can have fun. The party lifestyle. You can drink and party and go to the bars and have a ball. But it's just more blood because it leads to drunkenness and stupidity and death. More blood. The devil never gives you a solution, just more blood. You see that? See, listen to me. God is leading you to do something. Everybody in this room, there's not a single one of you that does not have it in your heart. You know what God wants. Now, you may be thinking in your mind, well, it's just a small thing. I mean, God's been kind of pushing me to get, you know, into reading the Bible for myself. But it's just a small thing and you're resisting it. Don't harden your heart. How many of you know that God does not major in minors? If God is leading you to get back into the word, then for you, that's the biggest thing in the universe. It may be small to someone else, but not to you. Because if God leads you to pick up the phone and make that relationship right, to choose forgiveness when you don't want to. Whatever it is that God is leading you to do, the devil is going to lie to you and say, if you avoid that, if you resist that, you can protect yourself. But he's lying to you. It's just more blood. It's just more blood. It's just more blood. What is God leading you to do? Maybe, maybe he's leading you 
to walk down the path of forgiveness. But you've been abused. You've been hurt. You've been wronged and you've got the evidence. Yeah. Let me explain to you something. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay what you said because it's not okay what you said. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay what you did because it's not okay what you did. That's a lie. Forgiveness is not just throwing up your hands and saying, I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. Are you kidding? You were really hurt. You were really wronged. You've been devastated. And here you've got God saying that you're supposed to forgive the way he forgives you and you didn't deserve forgiveness. How in the world do you do that? Well, Corey Ten Boom, who went through the Holocaust, said that, you know, forgiveness is a lot like ringing a big bell. You know, a big church bell, like in the cathedrals in Europe. And when you pull on a bell like that, what happens? It's going to ring, right? What happens when you let go of the rope? Well, it's still going to ring because the momentum and the weight of that bell is just going to keep going dong, dong. And you know what happens? If you let go of the rope and it rings again, you grab the rope and you pull again. That's what unforgiveness is like. See, unforgiveness is where you say, I'm going to let that go. But as soon as you say you're going to let it go, it rings in your head. And as soon as you hear it ring again, you grab the rope and you go, yes, I was hurt. Yes, I was hurt. Yes, I was victimized. I was wronged. I have a right to feel this way. And you keep pulling the rope and you become a slave, even though that person may already be dead and gone. And you remain a slave. And the devil lies to you and says, just keep ringing the rope. You'll feel better. Doesn't it feel good to pull on it and to talk to yourself about how much a victim you are until you tell everybody around you and you've alienated every friend that you have because nobody wants to hear it anymore. Hard, isn't it? You know what forgiveness is? What it really is? It's where I turn over my right, and I do have a right, to be hurt to a higher authority. And I say, I'm giving this up to you. You are the king. You will make this right. I'm going to trust you to set this right in the end. And every time it comes up to me and I hear that bong in my head again, I'm going to go, no, God, I've let it go to you. No, I've let it go to you. You're going to make it right. I trust you, not my feelings. That's what I'm going to close with. And I'm sorry I went a little long, but this is the key. Look, the solution to your heart's need, it's to do whatever God is leading you to do. Maybe it's forgiveness, getting into the word, getting a, getting a filter on that computer so you'll quit looking at that nonsense. Whatever it is, you got to do it. Because whatever God is leading you to do, even if it seems like a small thing to you, but you got to go do that because resisting God's leads only going to lead to more Blood, more problem. Don't listen to the lies. Don't listen to the lies. I don't know what God's leading you to do. Could be forgiveness. Could be getting into the word more. It could be committing yourself to this church. It could be a hundred things. I don't know. God has led a number of things in my personal life, even recently. You think he's going to quit leading you? Just because you're old? 
I realized how old I was the other day, scared the nonsense out of me. I'm going to be a grandfather in about four months. I don't know about this grandfather thing here. I'm not, I'm not there yet. This whole grandpa thing, I'm sorry, I don't know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's your solution. Why don't we pray about this? What do you think? Let's pray. Father, we call upon you in the name of Yeshua because you are good all the time. And you will never, ever, ever lead us in our hearts to do or say or change something that's not really, really important. You would never do that. But Lord, every one of us struggles with our feelings. And are we going to let our feelings rule or your lead rule? Help us, Lord, to learn from Pharaoh, not to harden our heart against you. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name right now that you speak into the heart of every person in this room and open their eyes to what you're leading them to do. Now, with every head bowed and every eye shut so that nobody's embarrassed, that's just courtesy, my friend. If there is something in your life that you know God has led you to do and you've resisted him, but this message grabbed you and you went, oh man, I got to do that. You're still afraid. You're still unsure. But my Bible tells me the Lord has not given us the spirit of fear, but that of love and power. Power to do it. And sound mind. That's what his word says. Will you trust it? If that's you and you know it's you, slip up your hand, let me see it. Father God, keep your hand up there. Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that every hand that is raised, and I see a lot, I pray you look down on your people and you see those hands, they are raised up to you and they are raised up to you in trust. They are raised up to you saying, God, I'm done. I'm going to follow your lead. Give me the strength. You swore by yourself that if we put our trust in you, we would not be put to shame. So I pray for those hands. I pray you empower these people to make that choice, to make that change, not to harden their heart. This is what we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.